Bonjour, Anine. Hello. My name is Serene Fox, and this is Into the Anthropocene, the podcast where we talk to smart and interesting people tackling one of the most urgent issues of our time, our impact on the planet. We'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this podcast on the land of the Mississaugas of New Credit and the traditional territories of the Wendat, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee Nations. Last time on Into the Anthropocene, our guests helped take us through the top 10 things we need to know about the science of the Anthropocene. We rely on our climate in ways that we don't really understand yet. As we change the climate, that is causing enormous problems. There's a, there's a clear signal happening. Um, it's as prominent, uh, probably as sharp as you'll find with any other geological boundary. Today I deep dive into the question, whose Earth is it anyway? We talk with four women working to shift how many are thinking and talking about the Anthropocene and environmentalism. First up, Zoe Todd and Heather Davis, two academics with the goal of decolonizing the Anthropocene. You can't say we're all in this together when we aren't, <laughs> when people don't have the same access to water and to housing and to food and and to the safety uh, uh, that other people uh, take for granted. You'll also hear from Nobel Prize nominee, Sila Watt-Cloutier. She's an environmental, cultural, and Inuit rights advocate and author of a revelatory memoir, The Right to be Cold. This history of this violence in our communities is now mirroring the violence that we are inflicting upon our planet. And as I say, the human trauma and planet trauma are one of the same. Finally, you'll hear Dr. Ingrid Waldron, sociologist and author of a powerful book that examines environmental racism. There's something in the water. In Canada, we say that poverty is a determinant of health. We say that racism is a determinant of health. We say that food insecurity and income insecurity and undereducation are determinants of health. These are the social factors that impact one's health. Here's my talk with Zoe and Heather. My name is Zoe Todd. I am a Métis scholar from Edmonton, or Amiskwichiwaskaigan, and I currently work in um, anthropology and indigenous studies at Carleton University in Ottawa. Hi, my name is Heather Davis. Um, I am a white settler, and I am currently um, an assistant professor of culture and media at the New School in New York. How did these two scholars start working together? Here's Zoe. I'm really interested in what indigenous legal traditions and oral history and art and, and everything um, that, that really shapes life and meaning here can offer to us um, about how to be better citizens. And so that's kind of where my work <laughs> intersects with Heather's um, because I'm really interested in how do we bring like local perspectives and indigenous philosophy into these global conversations about what is going on. And how does the term Anthropocene sit with these two? This is Heather. Well, for me, one of the things that I find troubling about the notion of the Anthropocene is that um, it doesn't seem to change a lot based on different concept, like contexts and and um, and situations and in relationship to particular, you know, local knowledges and um, and different movements and struggles. It's important to, 
given the current state of things, to to have something resembling a global com- conversation. Um, so I understand why there's kind of these global concepts um, that are trying to address um, something that's incredibly complex and put a name to it. I can understand where that impulse comes from. The danger with that impulse, and I think that we can see that in the Anthropocene, is that um, it tends to erase everything else underneath it. What was your initial reaction to the Anthropocene Working Group's date proposal of the mid-20th century? I had a really, like, very visceral reaction to it. I thought, that's just ridiculous. (laughs) It really made me angry because... Um, it just erased everything that led up to that moment. Like, we didn't wind up in the mid-20th century with sort of the sort of like specific uh, wars that were going on and already the catastrophic environmental impacts without hundreds of years of exploitation and violence that allowed that to happen. And so I just felt that it erased all of the violence and and oppression of Indigenous people and um, other groups around the globe that, you know, had their worlds, you know, so violently impacted by Western, you know, imperialism and colonialism and capitalism. In your paper, Decolonizing the Anthropocene, you argue for placing the golden spike, which is the start date of the Anthropocene, um, at 1610. Can you tell our listeners about the importance of the date 1610? That 1610 should be considered um, the date um, because uh, it it does two things that you can can actually see in the geologic record. Obviously, 1610 is the aftermath of colonization, the first waves of colonization in the Americas. You can see at that point that there's been a huge amount of movement of, of animals and flora and fauna around the globe. The other thing that's um, really haunting is that the other thing you can see in the geologic strata um, is the fact that carbon dioxide levels go down around that moment in history. And the reason why carbon dioxide levels go down around that moment in history is because forests have regrown um, in the wake of indigenous genocide in the Americas. There were so many people um, who were violently murdered or erased from this part of the world that all of the trees regrew, and you can see that in the geologic record. Can you guys talk a little bit more about why it is important to make the distinction that as humans, we are not all equally responsible? I think the crucial thing is that We can't talk about a common humanity when the dominant structures governing the planet operate on white supremacy and extraction and exploitation and oppression. Um, You can't say we're all in this together when we aren't, (laughs) when people don't have the same access to water and to housing and to food and and to the safety uh, uh, that other people uh, take for granted. And so for me, um, you know, I find the thing that's very frustrating about the Anthropocene sort of discourse is that, you know, uh, suddenly we're all one, but the last many hundreds of years have operated on us not being all one on exclusion and and violent white supremacy and 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 property and and um hoarding wealth in very you know increasingly 
um, you know, uh, more and more elite uh, sort of spaces. And so you don't get to have it both ways. I couldn't talk to two scholars without asking them about which academics they turn to for their research and inspiration. Zoe speaks first. We're really fortunate to be at this, this moment where all of these brilliant um, black and indigenous and other uh, racialized scholars are making these powerful arguments. And um, I guess like the goal of our work is to really make sure that we're centering their voices. We're talking about the end of worlds and how indigenous peoples have already faced the end of worlds. Um, you know, two people we draw on are Lawrence Gross, who has the concept of um, post-apocalyptic stress syndrome, um, which is an argument he makes that indigenous peoples have already faced the end of their worlds. And another scholar we draw on who kind of um, is really important to kind of that conversation about land and indigenous relationships to it is Vanessa Watts, who's a Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe scholar. And she advances what I think is just this, like, uh, so important argument of, around Indigenous place thought, which is sort of, um, you know, an argument that uh, Indigenous thinking isn't separate from the land, but actually the land and people um, think together. I think in a lot of ways, as academics, I think one of the best things that we can do is listen to other people. And I'm just going to quote my mom. My mom says that you can't decolonize without going back to the language. So I want to say chimigwech to you, Heather and Zoe, um, for giving your own language um, to this topic um, and to the future of this debate. I'm just going to call it a debate. I think that's how it should be named. That was my interview with Zoe Todd and Heather Davis. Check out the podcast episode description for a link with more information on their work. Like generations of Inuit, I bonded with the ice and snow. This is a quote from Sila Watt-Cloutier from her 2015 memoir, The Right to be Cold, one woman's story of protecting her culture, the Arctic, and the whole planet. Political representative, Inuit rights advocate, writer, and public speaker, Sila's story is a powerful one. Here she is. My name is Sheila Watt-Cloutier, but uh, known perhaps up here in my homeland of Sila. We don't have the SH sound in my language. And I come from uh, Kujuak, Nunavik, and I am living here in my birthplace in the northern part of Quebec. And my work is um, uh, working on human rights, on cultural rights, and on environmental rights for Inuit of the Arctic, uh, but for all of us, really, because as we protect our rights in the Arctic, we protect everyone's right for a healthy environment. In her memoir, Sila takes us through her early years growing up in northern Quebec. At age 10, she was sent away to live with a white family in Nova Scotia. She returned to Kujuak as an adult. How did she come to grips with this new reality of life for young people in Kujuak, Nunavik? Well, when I left as a young married woman and a, and a young mother, our community was again still quite uh, solid in its way. It's, uh, it, was, it was a place that we felt very safe, uh, where we didn't lock our doors, we left our keys in, in our skidoos and so on, and it was still a very uh, close-knit, safe community that I was leaving. But when I came back home after several years away, um, 
and, and and this was in my adult life. This is not when I was a young girl coming back after school, but this was when I was an adult and I had been working uh, and came back home and realized that there had been some um, real changes that were happening. And, and I became a student counselor working for the Kedavik School Board at the time. And the changes were quite stark and they were, they were very um, alarming actually and realized that the younger generation had really been marked by trauma because, you know, the, the historical context of trauma in our world goes way back, way back to the times when, um, you know, the people were forced, uh, relocated forcefully up into the high Arctic. Um, children were sent away at a young age. I was one of them for school. Uh, and I spent, you know, eight years away, coming home only in the summer, losing our language and having to gain it back and losing the, the important developmental years during those teenage years of the continued bonding with our parents and our community and our culture was very quickly severed. For me, it was important to try to, through my life story and a memoir, um, to to try to uh, help them perhaps lessen the burden that this younger generation carry so that they can better understand the context of why we struggle so much. The stark changes Sila saw in the community on her return were not limited to people. The wildlife of the Arctic was also at risk. Climate change, reduced sea ice, habitat loss, these are all still ongoing issues. Seal, whale, caribou, duck, ptarmigan, and fish. All of these animals are vital to the survival of Inuit culture and are what Sila calls country food. Here's Sila. Country food to us is extremely important. Uh, not only is it highly, highly nutritious in terms of what it gives us uh, in terms of uh, not just the nutrition, but the, the ability to warm us from the inside in a cold climate that we live in. For example, uh, a piece of seal meat the size of the palm of my hand um, is equivalent to four pieces of beef, for example, that will give you the same nutritional value in terms of iron and nutrients and omega-3 fats and all the warmth that is needed to be out hunting in minus 40, 50 below. And so the nutritional value of our food up here is extremely high. It bonds us as a community, as family. It connects us to our ancestry. And, and the hunting itself is not well understood for the power that it gives in terms of building life and character skills of our younger generation. You're learning how to be um, bold under pressure, how to withstand stress, how to be courageous, how to take the right uh, survival-based risks, how to build resiliency, how to um, ultimately alt uh, to develop your sound judgment and wisdom. And in our language, Silatunuk is very big for us, which is the hallmark of Inuit culture, really, is to build Silatunuk, uh, wisdom, for you to be able to uh, not only become a, a wonderful uh, uh, provider for your family, but also a natural conservationist. Uh, so all of that, really, as the ice goes, uh, you know, there is this evidence that this remarkable traditional knowledge and wisdom, so too will go with that ice. 
Sila, alongside Al Gore, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 for helping to create a landmark petition submitted to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. This petition had asked that protection from climate change be acknowledged as a fundamental human right. People paid attention. How does Sila look back on that historical moment? Even though the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights did, chose not to go forward uh, with our Inuit petition per se, uh, I think we helped to change the discourse on the issue of climate change as a real human rights issue. Most people in the world came to understand human rights violations as uh, individual rights, you know, torture and, and, and violence against individuals and so on. But they never thought about the, the violation of human rights of an entire people collectively, which is what we brought to the forefront of this debate uh, in the world. And so I think it really allowed people to take notice that indeed the inactions of powerful countries, in that, in, in that case was the United States at the time, uh, were um, in, in not addressing their CO2s, uh, emissions were indeed violating the human rights of Inuit of the Arctic who rely upon the ice, the snow, and the cold for survival and, and to thrive. I think when you bring these issues to the human dimension, people can relate to that so much better than a dry report ever can. And so it really allowed people to connect to one another, no matter where you were from, through the Inuit petition standing for their human rights. One of the major topics Sila covers in her book and ongoing speaking engagements is the interconnectivity of human trauma and climate trauma. She talks us through this concept. Human trauma and planet trauma are one of the same. And I, we have to start to think uh, in those terms, of course. And so here we are, you know, uh, dealing with intergenerational legacies of trauma and the structural racism that continues in our institutions, the environmental racism uh, that is happening and has happened in our world for a long, long time. This history of this violence in our communities is now mirroring the violence that we are inflicting upon our planet. And as I say, the human trauma and planet trauma are one of the same. Growing the economy in the same and sustainable way certainly causes irreparable damage to our atmosphere. And it's forcing the planet of ours to react with violent storms and other erratic events. And this is really not unlike the child who suffered trauma. Because without the care and a space to heal and effective coping mechanisms, self-destructive behavior is, is certainly inevitable. In the face of this kind of volatility, many Inuit communities are persevering and practicing a sustainable lifestyle in the Arctic. What can we learn from these innovative communities? Here's Sila's response. Well, our, our Inuit culture is, is based on respecting all resources around us and using only what we need and sharing what we, we, we hunt and harvest. Because we are struggling so much on the social and health issues, and, and sometimes people tend to not see us as people who can offer and model the possibilities for others in that way. It is important for people to understand that we would not be standing where we are today if we were not 
a people who who gave a lot of respect to the land and to our wildlife and to our culture. I was asked by a um, a reporter in I think it was in Washington D.C. just as we were launching our petition to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and said, why don't you just become engineers and um, and, and get on board and, and you know, and, and become educated and come on board? And I said to him, you know, it isn't about either or. Why would we, who we still respect our, our way of life and depend on our food source in, in, in a very real way, um, be the ones to change? Should you not be modeling yourselves after the Inuit way of life or the indigenous way of life? And that's what I keep saying is that if we could move a little closer to the way in which indigenous peoples respect and hunt and, and connect with one another and with their wildlife and their, and their land and the resources around them, then perhaps we could become a better world in the future for the next generations to come. That was Sila Watt-Cloutier, groundbreaking Inuit rights advocate and author. For more information on Sila and her book, The Right to be Cold, check out the link in the podcast episode description. Grassy Narrows in Kenora, the Chemical Valley in Sarnia. Historically and presently, Canada is no stranger to environmental racism. We spoke to an expert on the topic, Dr. Ingrid Waldron, author of There's Something in the Water. She takes us through this term, environmental racism, and reveals communities affected by it. My name is Ingrid Waldron. I am an assistant professor in the School of Nursing in the Faculty of Health at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I'm also the director of the Environmental Noxiousness, Racial Inequities, and Community Health Project. And the acronym for the project is the ENRICH Project. In terms of um, giving listeners a bit of a primer on what environmental racism is and uh, I guess why I think it's important for people to think about it and understand it. Um, It is a term that was coined in the early 1980s in the United States and uh, was popularized by Dr. Robert Bullard uh, in the U.S. Racial discrimination in the fact that uh, industry, polluting industries, tend to be disproportionately located um, in indigenous and racialized communities across the country, for example, across Canada and across the United States. Um, so these are the communities that tend to be um, exposed at a higher rate to contaminants and pollutants because they tend to be closer to these types of industries. and. I guess the other part of the definition is they're closer to these industries or these industries are placed in racialized and indigenous communities because these are the communities that tend to lack political power. So I always say that when we think about environmental racism, we have to look at, you know, the intersection of race and and class and income and poverty because those things together would make a community less powerful. And I would say, finally, another aspect of environmental racism is that um, you're going to less likely find indigenous and black communities um, on mainstream environmental boards or commissions or in groups. They are typically not at the table. 
From the Flint, Michigan water crisis to Indigenous communities here in Canada who don't have access to clean water, environmental racism is a current issue. It's happening right here in our own backyards. Ingrid tells us about Lincolnville, Nova Scotia on Canada's east coast. Lincolnville is one of about 50 historic, what we call in Nova Scotia, historic black communities uh, settled by black loyalists in the 1700s. And when they settled in Nova Scotia, they tended to settle in rural, isolated, out-of-the-way places. And that actually has ramifications for a lot of things in terms of accessing services, poverty, lack of education, etc. There was a decision to place a landfill in the black community in Lincolnville in or around 1974. And there were many protests that happened since 1974, uh, protests against the landfill, um, marches and letter-writing campaigns that happened. Um, In 2006, I believe the community felt that the landfill was going to be removed, but it was a bit of a slap in the face when they found out that the government was planning now to put a second-generation landfill over the first-generation landfill. So that's what we have today. They will say that um, higher rates of cancer and high rates of asthma and other illnesses in the community is a direct result of both landfills. And one of the things I wanted to do with the Enrich Project is to support them in doing that. In 2016, I forged a, a collaboration between the African Nova Scotian community in Lincolnville and Ecojustice's Calgary office. Ecojustice is like a law charity. They've been working together since then to look at legal remedies. But the Lincolnville community, this is a community that's, as you can imagine, extremely exhausted and tired. They've been, you know, they've been resisting this landfill since 1974. Um, and the, the you know, they've made headway, but it's been extremely slow. So I'm hoping that this collaboration with Ecojustice um, addresses most of their concerns. And what about the health outcomes of the people affected by environmental racism? So a lot of um, Indigenous communities would say, when we talk about health, we have to understand colonialism as a social determinant of health. In Canada, we say that poverty is a determinant of health. We say that racism is a determinant of health. We say that food insecurity and income insecurity and undereducation are determinants of health. These are the social factors that impact one's health. We asked Ingrid about the importance of civil disobedience and grassroots protest movements in the fight against environmental racism. Do movements like Black Lives Matter connect to environmental justice? Here's what she had to say. One of the things I mention in my book is the need to the need for the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada to have an expanded analysis that engages with issues of environmental racism and environmental justice. It, it is um, a coalition or a group of people that's certainly dealing with issues of policing and police violence, etc. Um, but I noticed the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States does engage with issues of environmental justice, environmental racism, renewable energy, etc. And when I reviewed the Facebook page and websites for Black Lives Matter Toronto and Black Lives Matter Montreal, I noticed that there's no discussion on environmental issues of any kind. The focus is, you know, policing, which makes sense. Um, So I'm hesitant to critique it, but I would say that 
I'm hoping, because once again, it's still in, in its infancy in Canada, I'm hoping as it continues to develop and grow, uh, that it would take into account other forms of racial and gendered violence like environmental racism um, because environmental racism and climate change are pressing issues. Pe- most people would say these are the issues of the day. This brings us back to our ever-looming A-word, Anthropocene. How does Ingrid connect the term to her work? The term is an interesting term because it really focuses on the fact that it's human beings that have changed the planet um, and that human beings need to be accountable because they are responsible um, for changing the planet. And I think for my project, um, it's apt. It's, it's, it's extremely relevant because what I'm saying and what I'm arguing and what anybody who's doing environmental racism work is saying is that it's policies and decisions made by human actors, uh, in other words, government and industry owners, those decisions and policies that they make have impacts in communities. Social well-being, access to health resources, clean water, these are all things that many of us take for granted. Yet so many communities right here in North America struggle with these issues every day. People like Ingrid Waldron, Sila Wakloutier, Zoe Todd, and Heather Davis are raising the issues, paving the way, and providing us with real solutions. Next week on Into the Anthropocene, we go into the city exploring the urban Anthropocene. Cities impact the environment in major ways, but also offer major opportunities for hope and innovation. We'll hear from Julia Langer, CEO of the Atmospheric Fund in Toronto. We are part of the problem. Cities can also be very much a part of the solution. And Susan Blight, Toronto-based Anishinaabe artist and activist. I think that there is a, a kind of strength in challenging the notion that Indigenous peoples don't belong in cities. And so our project, Ogimamikana, really kind of grapples with that idea. I hope you'll join us. Into the Anthropocene, Our Impact on Earth was produced by the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto to go along with the exhibition Anthropocene, featuring the works of Edward Brutinsky, Jennifer Bachual, and Nicolas de Pensier. The exhibition is on at the Art Gallery of Ontario and the National Gallery of Canada from the end of September 2018 until early 2019. For more information, visit our website at www.ago.ca.